Good evening, everybody. Welcome to our fourth class in the Ender's Game series, in the Ender's Game class here. Uh, I am looking forward to tonight, and I'm going to tell you right off the front, we are, I, I have no aspirations of getting through the very end of the book. Uh, I knew this was going to, this class was going to be kind of impossible when I planned it. It's one of the reasons why I have the sort of uh, spillover class scheduled for uh, next week, though, at a peculiar time. Um, but uh, I do hope my goal is to get through the end of the Bugger Wars today, so we'll see uh, if we can get so far as that. Um, but first, I wanted to uh, let you guys know that we are, you know, for those of you who are part of the voting process to elect our next class topics, uh, our next books, you already know that uh, we are nearing the end of that process. We had an excellent slate of seven books that were uh, nominated by our nominating uh, committee, our nominating council. Uh, we're electing the next two uh, uh, works, as I think I explained before, uh, and uh, a number of really, really wonderful works. There's the voting is still open, so if you haven't, if you if you have a vote uh, and you haven't voted yet, let's see. Oh yeah, Sean is asking which uh, which ones they were. I don't have the list in front of me. Let me see if I can remember. Um, it was uh, Tolkien in the Great War by John Garth, um, Dune, Watership Down, American Gods by Neil Gaiman. Um, uh, uh, the Princess Bride, Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy, and the Book of Lost Tales, Part One by Tolkien. I think those were the seven, as I recall. Um, so, if if you do have a vote and you haven't voted yet, make sure you do uh, get in there and vote, um, because the, the the voting will be closing soon. Um, there is still some uncertainty. I think that the question of which book is going to end up at number two is uh, still up for grabs. I think number one is. More or less of a lock. It's and I wouldn't want to give it away and tell anybody what we're going to be doing next. But just you know, I think there's a pretty good chance um, that we know what that one will be. So that will be fun. Anyway, um, I uh, <laughs> hope that you all enjoy our. I I trust we're going. I think that the next works are likely to be uh, long enough that I think we're going to probably get through the rest of our of our whole first season with these uh, I think so anyway um, that's uh, that's that's the plan so I, I should definitely be able to announce for our next class we'll be able to, to you know officially confirm um, there are next two books in order uh, and actually they so should they should probably take us through the rest of the summer um, so and I, I'm, I'm excited whatever way it works out I'm really pumped up for our next set of books too so this has been an absolutely fantastic uh, first year the slate of books we've had in this first year just awesome I've been so excited so um, anyway but now without further ado let us launch into the conclusion of Ender's Game so um, you remember that I didn't get quite through. Let's <laughs> start of every class this way. You remember I didn't get quite through all those things I wanted to talk about last time, but um, I, I, you know, I said there was one more sort of topic that I had wanted to talk about. I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna save it. Actually, I'm gonna come back to my my final topic a little bit later in today's class, and I'm gonna start off with it. Instead, what I want to start off with is I want to start off looking at Valentine uh, and her conversation with Ender on the raft um, on Earth before he goes up to command school, um, because one of the things that I think is so 
fascinating about this book. One of the issues, and again, you know, I, I confessed before um, that I really disliked the sort of Demosthenes and Locke um, angle of this story. You know, it's like everything that wasn't battle school or command school, I was less interested in. Uh, I was just kind of shameless that way, and when in in my in my uh, first readings of this book, because um, I do find uh, the, 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 the descriptions of the battles uh, very, very engaging, very fascinating. Um, but um, we, uh, I, one of the things that, I, that I've really been noticing is the persistent examination throughout the course of this book of the question of one's relationship to, you know, the, individual, the, the relationship between the individual and humanity as a whole, and we've been looking at that from the beginning. I think we continue to see that being examined. And I say examined because it's one of the things that I find so striking about this book is that I don't get the clear sense that this book is really sort of really firmly preaching a particular thing about that. I mean, there are some obvious concerns that it has, but I think it has concerns on both ends. Um, if we look at both ends of the spectrum, um, you know, there it's neither one of them is really, um, is really wholly desirable. I think that, you know, it sort of is examining the different possibilities. So uh, let me stop speaking about this uh, sort of theoretically and, and, and talk about things more specifically. Um, Let's um, let's look at a couple of the passages I wanted to focus on. This is at the very start of chapter thirteen. Um, this is the uh, two military people talking about Demosthenes and Locke, and uh, having discovered the IF, having finally discovered who Demosthenes and Locke really are. Pardon me, I don't really think it's funny, but I can't help but laugh. All this time we've been worried. All the time we've been we've been trying to persuade the Russians not to take Demosthenes too seriously. We held up Locke as proof that Americans weren't all crazy warmongers. Brother and sister, pubescent, and their last name is Wigan. Ah, coincidence? The Wigan is a third. They are one in two. Oh, excellent. The Russians will never believe that Demosthenes and Locke aren't as much under our control as the Wigan. Is there a conspiracy? Is someone controlling them? We have been able to detect no contact between these two children and any adult who might be directing them. That is not to say that someone might not have invented some method you can't detect. It's hard to believe that two children... Now, what I want to mostly point out here is sort of to see the framework that these two, these two IF officers are operating within, right? Um, they can't believe, you know, we, this, this, this passage that I, that I selected here starts and ends with them expressing a fundamental inability to believe that these children could be agents on their own, that they would not be tools of somebody. Um, this is, of, the fact that, you know, again, on the one hand, you'd think if anybody um, should be confident about what young children of this age are actually capable of, it would be, you know, the people running battle school, right? Um, especially since they know that uh, these two, you know, almost made the cut for battle school. That is, they both of them had the intelligence to be able to go to battle school. Both of them were only excluded uh, for reasons of, of temperament or personality. Um, as, of course, you know, right 
immediately after the passage where I stopped uh, quoting here, uh, Graf, you know, the report that Graf had confirmed that nothing that, that has been done by Locke or Demosthenes is, in his opinion, beyond the capabilities of uh, Peter and Valentine Wigan on their own. Um, however, again, that doesn't really enter into their thinking. They are assuming. Um, obviously, there has to be some way in which somebody is controlling these two kids. They have to be the tools of someone. Now, what we've seen before is that the two of them, of course, primarily Peter, because Valentine is, in fact, the tool of somebody. Peter, right? But as far as we can see, and I, you know, and I keep thinking about this and kind of wrestling with this one way or the other, that um, Peter Wiggin appears to be the only person I can think of in this book who at no time serves as anyone else's tool. Um, Valentine can manipulate him. You know, she, she, she succeeds, she believes in getting her way, though I wonder. Um, I wonder if that's even true. You know, she, she says that, you know, she explains to Ender at the end, see, look, hey, I'm talking about chapter 15. Um, she, she says to Ender at the end that she has basically blackmailed Peter into letting her go. Right, and into letting her take Ender away and have him not return. That was part of that was part of Peter's plan. But, um, but it, that that's a little unclear to me. Remember, we already saw in the the last Locke and Demosthenes bit before that point. That is, you know, the last time we get a chapter focusing that is in in in, in chapter thirteen on Locke and Demosthenes, we learn that. Peter and Valentine are kind of moving apart on this, and in particular, we see Peter being 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 envious um, of Valentine. Uh, so, it seems to me very likely, based on everything that we've heard about Peter and all the evidence we've gotten from Valentine's end, that Peter may well consider Valentine and most likely Ender uh, as a threat to him potentially, um, and therefore not. Be it as Sean Smith says, I, I think he would have been happy to see her go. I think so too. Um, uh, so, so yeah, I I, I do think that um, um, this you know and uh, you know Daniel's asking Daniel Sweeby is asking, are you certain there isn't a wag the dog situation between Valentine and Peter? Um, you know, so Daniel, you're suggesting that Valentine is really the one in control and Peter is the one actually serving as her tool. Uh, <laughs> Based on what we get, and you know, Valentine is one of the characters, one of the few characters from whom we get a, a first-person point of view, you know, segments during this story. I think we have to trust. I don't see much reason not to trust what we're told uh, from her point of view, and she at least does not seem to believe that that's the case. Um, again, she might be. You know, it might be a very deep plot that she's concealing, but again, I think it's hard when we get those point of view sections from her uh, to really accept. I think that we're not that what we're hearing from her then is not legit. Um, but um, but I think that we can see. But but Daniel, to kind of take that that observation one step back, um, it is certainly there's no question that she sort of sets out to try to steer Peter, right? To try to um, uh, reduce his cruelty to try to civilize Peter. And it seems that whether or not she has succeeded in manipulating him or not, he has in fact gone in that way. 
um, that has been the effect in the end of their partnership, it seems. Um, now that was, by everything we're told, his plan all along, right? Um, the role that he, by, by, by adopting the role of Locke and everything else. But, um, uh, but anyway, I mean, I, so I, I think that we, we certainly can see the two of them manipulating each other in different ways. I'm not trying to, when I say that Valentine is serving as Peter's tool, I don't mean that she's completely passive or that, you know, she's totally outclassed intellectually by Peter or anything like that. I don't think that's true. Um, but nevertheless, at the end of the day, they're his schemes, not her schemes, right? He is scheming for power for himself. She obviously, um, she's not, in the end, interested in power. She abdicates. She leaves. Um, and he becomes hegemon. He gets what he wants. Um, but anyway... Back to my observation before, I, I still think Peter Wigan is, if not the only non-tool in the story, the the biggest non-tool. That is, he is he is furthest away from being a tool um, uh, of any character that we see. He is also, and we were looking at this especially in class two when we were looking at the the the, the computer game, the fantasy game stuff. Um, he is also like the epitome of monstrousness. He is the one that Ender sees in the mirror with the snake sticking out of his mouth. That's, um, you know, that's, that's, that, that's Peter. When he, Ender, feels that he is becoming a monster, that he has been, that he is ceasing to be a human being, that he's not acting like a human being, not treating people like human beings, um, it's Peter that he identifies himself with. Um, so, those two things, I think, are really fascinating. This connection, as I was suggesting back in class two, this connection between dehumanization and monstrosity, which seems kind of simple, but, but also that, that if you separate, to, to be an individual, um, to not be a tool of humanity is to distance yourself from the rest of humanity. That in a sense, you know, Ender is being dehumanized in being made a tool, right? Um, he is being isolated from everybody else so that he will be a more effective tool. Peter is most individual, least subject to the rest of humanity, in fact turning to make the rest of humanity, the rest of the, the, the adult world into his tool in order to achieve his end. Um, but of course in doing so, or because he is so, maybe, he is also dehumanized or inhuman or something like that. Um, so um, Anyway, so I think that um, we see a kind of a, 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 a kind of a paradox in this. That you know, to some extent, one question that I keep coming back to in reading the end of the story is, well, what does it mean to be human then? What does it mean to be human? Um, if you're a monster, one way or the other, right? If you if you become a tool like Ender, you are made into a monster, right? You become a gun pointed at something else as and as Razor Mackham, I was going to Razor Mackham, I always call him that. Mazer Rackham calls him at the end. Uh, uh, he's like a gun that they've pointed at, at, uh, at, at, at the buggers, at the enemy. Um, that's pretty dehumanizing, right? You're, you're merely a weapon. Um, and on the other end, you have Peter, who's also a monster. So um, anyway, like I said, I think that there's a lot of really... Uh, um, there's a lot of really interesting consideration of what this really means. Um, now, in, again, in talking about this passage, I'm not necessarily saying that they refuse to believe, um, but they have a really hard time believing. 
um, and they don't think the Russians are ever going to believe that this is the case. The only reason they're willing to believe is that they know what Enderwigan is capable of, and so are therefore open to the possibility that these two... But again, the point that I'm making is this: the question they immediately ask is, who's controlling them? Somebody's got to be controlling them, right? They have to be tools of some larger interest, not they are individuals who are manipulating these larger interests for their own ends, right? Which is, in fact, the case. And there's a good reason why they wouldn't assume that, because we don't see it anywhere else. It is only in the Locke and Demosthenes plot that we see that. Um, okay. Um, let's focus on Valentine for a second. Now, Valentine, when Graf comes to her and brings her to see Ender on the raft at the lake before command school. Um, she, of course, as we recall, was used as a tool before. Ender saw that, right? Um, this was right before, of course, we were talking about this in class two. This is uh, right before he uh, finally completes the room, you know, escapes from the room at the end of the world. And uh, he um, is, in, he had been in despair and he is, in a sense, driven deeper into despair. Um, they have taken, by, by using Valentine as a tool, um, they have taken her away from him. The last thing that he held dear, the last thing that was sacred to him, they've taken that and used that as a weapon against him to try to manipulate him with it, with Valentine. And she has submitted to be used in that way. She has become the instrument of those whom he has come to view as his enemies. And you'll remember the sort of really poignant phrase that she uses um, in her tearful praise of Ender's character um, when she says that he never gave in, right? He never gave in to being like Peter. And what seems to me the plain implication of her words is a, essentially a self-indictment. She has given in, not only in the sense that she has um, uh, that she has given in by um, by working with Peter, right? You know, Ender never gave in to being like Peter. She has given in uh, and submitted to be Peter's tool. But, of course, more broadly, in that moment, you know, when she is agreeing to write that letter, she is agreeing, she is giving in, she is, she is becoming a tool. So we see her make that choice, but, like Ender, loathe herself for it. Um, look at the difference now. You said he built the raft. How long has he been here? Two months. He, he, we meant his leave to last only a few days, but you see, he doesn't seem interested in going on with his education. Oh, so I'm therapy again. This time we can't censor your letter. We're just taking our chances. We need your brother badly. Humanity is on the cusp. The collective needs him. Humanity as a whole has need of that tool over there, that individual to be its tool for, self, for the preservation of the species. This time Val had grown up enough to know just how much danger the world was in, and she had been Demosthenes long enough that she didn't hesitate to do her duty. Where is he? Two factors. She had grown up enough to know just how much danger the world was in, so now she she's not just thinking of Ender, she's not just thinking all that matters is my little brother and trying to protect my little brother and I don't care what you you know, you, you, you IF officers have to say about it. Now she sees, ah, 
having embraced the wider world, having having encountered the wider the wider world now, you know, with the the great experience, uh, the wealth of experience brought to her by her twelve years, she um, now knows enough to realize actually humanity really is in a lot of danger. Therefore, they they really do need the tool, right? Um, and she had been Demosthenes long enough that she didn't hesitate to do her duty. So her role is her her playing the role of Demosthenes. Right, her engagement with the race, the species as a whole, right, with public affairs, with worldwide politics, right. Um, she is. She has been thinking about the good of the whole, not just the good of individuals. So she's not here as she was the first time. She's no longer just the defender of Ender, right, personally. Now she is focused on the good of society, the good of the world as a whole. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's true, you know, Sean is pointing out that Graf is lucky that Valentine had been Demosthenes, that uh, she and Peter had started getting access to information that not a lot of people saw. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's sort of the practical reason why she knows all this. So knowing what she does, it's like what Major Anderson says. You know, when he um, he had been really resistant to what Graf was doing, but as soon as Graf left and he started getting the briefings that Graf had been getting while he was, uh, you know, commanding a, a battle school, he starts saying, yeah, okay. You know, now he, he totally understands things in a different light because he has more information. And with more information, he comes to appreciate the danger more. Um, but again, what that suggests is, if if humanity, if you know for sure, if you have if you have information that humanity really is in trouble as a whole, that there's a serious threat to humanity, then you are more committed. It is your duty for you as individuals to submit to the whole. Right? That's the conclusion that she draws. She she doesn't hesitate to do her duty. Knowing what she knows, right, and having been committed to, at least in principle, being committed to the welfare of the whole, because again, she's not been, in being Demosthenes, she's not promoting herself, right? She's not, she's not focused on personal gain. She's, um, uh, she's again, the, the whole theory, the whole concept of Demosthenes is to be a spokesperson to, 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 to speak up for you know, what is right. Like, not that she believes that what Demosthenes says is right, especially at first. Um, but again, that's, that's the posture, right? That's the idea. She's been in that pattern of thinking. She has been putting herself in the position of someone who is at least supposed to be, you know, speaking the hard truths for the common good. That's what Demosthenes does, right? To say the things everybody else is afraid to say. Um, but, um, anyhow, uh, this is has apparently trained her to do her duty to subordinate here herself and Ender. So I mean, again, it's it's because I, I think it's 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 quite striking and really important. Having been a somewhat unwilling tool the first time, um, and hating herself for it, she now comes back and willfully does it the second time. Because now she feels it's her duty. She didn't feel her only duty was to end her before. 
and now she feels it's her duty. And we see her doing this much more explicitly when she is actually talking to Ender. I'm not talking about fame, Ender. I'm not talking about power either. I'm talking about accidents. Just like the accident that Mazer Rackham happened to be the one who was there when somebody had to stop the buggers. If I'm here, said Ender, then I won't be there. Somebody else will. Let them have the accident. His tone of weary unconcern infuriated, infuriated her. I'm talking about my life, you self-centered little bastard. If her words bothered him, he didn't show it. Just lay there, eyes closed. When you were little and Peter tortured you, it's a good thing I didn't lie back and wait for Mom and Dad to save you. They never understood how dangerous Peter was. I knew you had the monitor, but I didn't wait for them either. Do you know what Peter used to do to me because I stopped him from hurting you? Shut up, Ender whispered. She's doing her duty, right? Um, now, Neil, you're right. Ender is no accident, not by any stretch, right? He is anticipated. He was, in fact, planned for genetically. Again, not through a, a, a you know a detailed multi-generational um, uh, Bene Gesserit style um, breeding plan, but uh, you know he was he was uh, uh, sort of custom ordered as a third um, because apparently you know those Wigan parents just have uh, between the two of them. Uh, you know, when they get together, the best genes on, on the earth, apparently. Um, even though neither one of them, the parents, seem to be much, very spectacular. But anyhow, um, so yeah, no, you're right, Neil. From the beginning, they first seen Ender and groomed Ender. Um, so Ender's commanding the fleet at the end is certainly not an accident. Um, but again, it's like Valentine coming back the second time. Remember Mazer Rackham. Um, I just have to pause because I keep calling him Razor Rackham by accident. <laughs> Mazer Rackham um, was scorned. He was a nobody. He was a reserve, right? Um, they didn't value properly what Mazer Rackham had to give, but he wasn't, although he was a, an accident, he wasn't a fluke, right? As we see when Ender studies under him uh, in Chapter 14, he is as smart as Ender. Right, Ender, you know, we're told that in Mazer Rackham, Ender finds the first living mind for which he has respect. The first living mind that he's ever encountered that really works as fast as his does, that really works, that sees the things that he sees. So again, in that sense, Mazer Rackham was no accident. Wait, wait, he was an accident. Accident that he happened to be there um, at the time and able to do this, but, but not a fluke, right? Not a fluke. He, he really had, the, he was the correct individual for that time, um, in or the one who was able to be, who happened to be there, but who in being there did have the capability, not by chance, um, to stop the buggers. So, so no, it's no accident the second time, right? They've learned from that. So now they know their duty, right? They know, they, now they have a plan. They're going to do it correctly the second time, and so Ender is not an accident. But notice in having already made her own choice about duty, notice how she is attempting to rally Ender in the same direction. He has a duty, and what is his duty fundamentally? To think, to not to be a self-centered little bastard, right, is his duty. His problem is that he thinks of, he's, she is arguing that he's only thinking of himself here. He's fundamentally being selfish. You've got to think of others besides yourself. You've got to put humanity in front of yourself. You've got to do your duty. It's not about you. 
it's about doing the best for everybody. Um, you've got it's everyone on earth who's going to die if you refuse to do your job, if you refuse to be a tool. So you have a duty, you have a moral imperative. It is the humane thing to do to sacrifice yourself for the sake of humanity. You are being monstrous if you don't do that. If he defends himself, if he protects himself from the situation that he sees himself in, if he will not continue to go along anymore with their program and their manipulation of him, um, if instead he says, as he said at the end of battle school, you know, this, I'm not going to play anymore, I don't care, um, they can put as many little slips of paper as they want in the door, I'm not going to play, I refuse to cooperate with them anymore. Um, if he carries on like that, he's inhuman, right? He's not doing his duty. Um, but yeah, Sean, I halfway agree with you. Um, Sean is, says, you know, no one really dies for an abstraction. She places herself as a symbol of mankind. I agree, Sean, that that's what she's doing. Um, she is pointing out to him, not just if you, you know, don't do it for humanity, Ender, do it for me. Now that is the conclusion that Ender himself comes to, right? He's not doing it for humanity. He's doing it for Valentine because he does still love her and he doesn't want her to be killed by the buggers. And so he is going to go on and do what he's going to do. He's going to agree to be there, to be the tool of the fleet in order to save Valentine's life. But of course, but notice again, yes, she's doing that, but notice the pattern that she's setting here. She is pointing not just to herself in the sense of, don't you love me? Don't you remember how I cared for you? Doesn't that make you love me? Doesn't that make you want to protect me? She is saying that, but more than that, right? She's holding herself as an example. Look what I did for you. You do the same thing for me. This is what it means to be a loving and caring person. This is what it means to be the opposite of a monster. I fought against Peter. Peter's the monster. Right? Peter is, is, the, is the standard of monstrosity in this book. Um, and she is saying, I stood against the monster. Right? I was the opposite of the monster. I was the one protecting life instead of destroying. I was the one, I was the one, the one you know, healing and shielding instead of torturing. Um, so it's not just do it for me, but also be like me. Right? That's your duty. That's what it means. So people who do their duty, that's how they are. That's what they're like. That's what humans are like. So tools. So humans who care about people and want to protect people and do the right thing by people and put other put people and humanity as a whole above themselves act like tools. Brent says, so either way, he's Peter whether he stays a tool or refuses to be one. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing that's so, uh, that I find so fascinating about this story is that it's, it is in this sense, I feel, anyway, it's, 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 it's very non-black and white. It very strongly resists um, any kind of really simplistic dichotomy between... Um, Obviously, right action and obviously wrong action. You know, again, we have this whole 
um, human, you know, human versus monster thing, but it's there's monstrosity on both ends, right? Because um, Brent, exactly as you say, both ends are Peter. Um, you know, if he Ender becomes a tool, he becomes a killer. He's made into and you know, and as he keeps thinking, as he keeps saying, Peter would be proud of me. I'm becoming like Peter, right? I am. I, I've been trained. I'm being trained to be Peter. Um, remember when Valentine reaches out to tickle him? And he like grabs her arm and he's gonna like break her wrist or I don't know what he's gonna do. Right? He doesn't do anything to her, but he grabs her self defensively, right? When she reaches out to tickle him, and again, it's a clear signal of like, like he's. You can see that he has been trained to be something like a monster. What happens when you know we get that wonderful moment with the wasp on the raft, right? Where she sees the wasp and she's like, "Oh, hi, little wasp." You're kind of scary, but that's okay. I'm just going to let you be, and I'll lie here in the sun, and you can stand there in the sun, and we'll both be... <laughs> she turns over, and there's Ender grinding the, the wasp with his finger into the, into the raft. Um, no, okay, I guess the old live and let live thing, not going to work after all. So again, yes, Brent, he's being trained to be a monster, right? He's being trained to be like Peter. You know, he doesn't you know, skin squirrels alive and nail their legs to the ground, but, you know, he kills wasps with his bare hands, right? He's, 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 it's like moving in that, at least he feels it's moving in that direction, but again, the opposite end, to refuse to be a tool, to be completely on your own, is to be like Peter, is to be just a different kind of monster. Um, so, um, anyway, it's, in in this way, I I think that uh, this book does a really fascinating job of inviting us to sort of question both sides, to really think carefully about this. You know, it's um, it's easy to say, you know, you've got on the one hand a sort of, you know, a traditional idea, you know, a, you know, dolce et decorum est, pro patria mori, you know, it, it, it is a sweet and fitting thing to die for one's country. Um, and then you have, like, the post-World War One reaction against that thinking, right? Um, uh, and... Uh, you know, really just sort of uh, uh, looking with, with really great skepticism and, and, and cynicism at that kind of a traditional idea. And this book really seems to invite, you know what, both of those things have a tendency to be monstrous, right? Um, to, if you subordinate yourself completely to humanity, um, if you become simply a tool, then you cease to be human. Um, but if you separate yourself from humanity, and refuse to serve others, then you become a monster. Um, anyway, um, yes, and Sean, of course, you were right uh, about the parallel between the wasp and the buggers. It's this. Uh, it's a. It's a. It's a. You know, because as Sean is recalling, that kind will sting without provocation. Best to be preemptive with those suckers, because they'll just come after you, man. Um, you know, there's there could be no live and let live policy with that particular species of wasp. Uh, they're just they're just they're just mean buggers. Those guys are. Um, best to just squash them on sight, really. Um, uh, I'm surprised Ender hasn't hunted down their their nest and destroyed a lot of them yet. Um, you know, this can of raid, maybe he would, or maybe he just crushed them all in his fingers. Um, but anyway, you guys certainly see the parallel there. Um, look at where Ender ends up. Because it is it is about Valentine. 
here's his final reflection before he leaves the earth for the last time. Valentine, who, is, who was helping Peter in his plotting. Valentine, who still loved Ender no matter what happened. This is him thinking about how he would do this for Valentine. And following that train of thought led him back to Earth, back to the quiet hours in the center of the clear water, ringed by a bowl of tree-covered hills. That is the Earth, he thought. Not a globe thousands of kilometers around, but a forest with a shining lake, a house hidden at the crest of the hill, high in the trees a grassy slope leading upward from the water, fish leaping and birds strafing to take the bugs that lived at the border between water and sky. Earth was the constant noise of crickets and winds and birds, and the voice of one girl who spoke to him out of his far-off childhood, the same voice that had protected him from terror, the same voice that he would do anything to keep alive, even return to school, even leave Earth behind again for another four or forty or four thousand years even if she loved Peter more. Um, so in a sense, it's... he'll sacrifice himself for Valentine, but also the Earth. Remember one of the things that he says, it's, 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 a, it's a brief line, um, but it's one of the I thought it was one of the most moving things, for me anyway, it's one of the most moving things that Ender said, um, moving to pity, that is, um, in his conversation with, uh, um, with Valentine. Um, when he says, I remembered you were beautiful, um, and she says, well, you know, memory will play tricks on us sometimes, right? Um, and he says, no, you know, the face is the same, but I, I don't really know what beauty is anymore. That seems to me what he's really in touch with here, what he's reflecting on. This is what he's describing, what he is identifying, or what he is, uh, you know, by kind of synecdoche, um, you know, the part standing for the whole, connecting to Earth as a whole. His little snapshot image of Earth is that lake. Um, and this image of peace, this image of harmony, even though we have, um, you know, there's conflict here. We have the birds strafing to take the bugs, right? We have, we've got, you know, it's not like everything is, is you know, peace and harmony. Um, but you have this whole closed system, this beautiful system, um, and uh, peace and life and um, you know the the, the 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 constant noise of crickets and winds and birds these things which are totally uninterested in him notice I mean, to me what is so striking about this is the contrast on the one hand that is remember he he hated being on earth um, because it physically geographically wasn't like battle school he was used to being in a curved space he was used to living in a bowl Right, um, and so he liked it here in this lake because he was in the middle of this little bowl-shaped valley, and so it kind of was like being at battle school. So notice what we get at battle school. He is in this metal bowl, and he is the center of that little universe. Right, um, and everything is 
sort of focused on him and all of the rules are being changed to try to be, you know, so he feels like it's like, it's, it's ender contra mundum, right? It's, it's ender against the world. The very, not only are the teachers ganging up, you know, not only is he fighting against the other commanders, but he's, you know, the teachers are ganging up against him. The very, the very rules of the game are being changed to try to defeat him as he's thinking. Remember, we were looking at that last time, how he was thinking of, 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 of it as him versus them and that they wanted him to fail, you know, they were trying to beat him. Um, here we have again Ender in a bowl, and Ender the center of the world, right? But no, this valley is the whole, the Earth is this valley, and he's like the only person in it except Graf who doesn't count, and um, and and he's at the center, right? But instead of the center of furious and violent activity, he's the center of this complete peace and calm. Instead of being the focal point of everything, with everyone focusing on him and everything, everything. Um, you know, I, I, I concentrated on on you know manipulating him. Um, you have everything else that he's describing here going on around him without any um, care for him at all. That you know the 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 fish and the birds and the bugs and you know, the crickets, the wind, the trees, the house. None of these things care about him, right? Um, he is at the center of it, and yet at peace. Remember his little his brief sort of fantasy that he didn't really know what it was like. Uh, of being just a normal person, like maybe I could go and live in one of those little villages and just be a normal boy, right? This is like his one glimpse of being normal in that sense. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Daniel, you're right. Uh, Daniel Sweeby is reminding us he's, he's channeling Dink, right? Yes, that image of Dink floating in peace in the middle of gravity, right? Um, now there, Dink was very consciously carving out his own little piece of solitude and, uh, and tranquility in the middle of battle school, right? In the battle room itself. Um, as an act by Dink of defiance, right? In the middle of this battle room, I'm going to claim this as my own sanctuary of tranquility instead of the battleground of war that you guys insist on making it, right? So it was... It, it was for Dink, a kind of a rebellious move. And, of course, it is, in a sense, for Ender here, too. He knows he's supposed to be off to commander school and said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay. He's going to make the Earth into his uh, quiet place. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Brent uh, says he actually lives near Green, Greensboro, North Carolina, and uh, Lake Brant Road is a real place. Um, Interesting. Interesting. It says Vicks Vapor Rub was 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 invented near there. Fascinating. I had no idea, Brent. Um, I don't I'm, I think I can work Vicks Vapor Rub into this though. Uh, but uh, <laughs> that's that's interesting. I didn't know that. Um, yes, but Eleanor, I agree. It does reminds me too of the beautiful landscape in the mind game, um, especially. Um, um, oh right, Brent. Of course, that's what it meant with the, you know the uh, as as. Uh, Graf says, you know, it was the, the house that Misty Rub built, right? Of course, that's, it's a reference to Vic's Vapor Rub. I was wondering what was behind that. Yeah, of course, of course. I didn't get that reference. Um, uh, but anyway, yes, Eleanor, back to your very relevant point. You're right. Um, it is like the beautiful landscape in the mind game. It reminds me in particular of the vista that he sees from the cliff, the cliff that he jumps off of. Again, in that Dink Meeker-ish move, right, where he just jumps from the cliff and floats in the air until the cloud catches him and takes him away. Uh, I, I agree the raft in the lake is something like that. So, so 
I don't know, you see what that parallel would suggest? That's the path to the end of the world. How do you get to the end of the world in the fantasy game? You see the vista of the world, you jump off the cliff and the cloud carries you over to the castle. Um, and this is, he's going to go to the end of the world. Not his world, turns out to be the end of somebody else's world. I can't see how in this book so many times these phrases and concepts come around again and turn out to be relevant in a totally different context. Um, you know, what does it mean by the end of the world? The end of the end of you know the end of the world in what sense? And all thinking means the end of the human world. Well, of course, ironically, it can be come it can come to mean it is made to mean in a sense in the end uh, in chapter fifteen to mean the end of the bugger world. Um, in fact, the thing that uh, that you know, Graf and the others are are are, are most hoping to bring about, um, but um, but yet it's not going to be like they're thinking. It certainly isn't going to mean to ender uh, what they are sort of thinking or hoping. Um, anyway, um, so I think this is a, this is a, a, and, and again just another example. This moment, this description um, of here as he reflects on the world, the way that this connects to those other things, the fantasy game, that scene with Dink Meeker. Dink Meeker I have found this book so intimately tied together, so intricately tied together. Uh, like this. Um, it's been one of the things that has really impressed me most uh, about this book. Okay. Ender, of course, emerges from this and makes the decision he's gonna he's gonna do it, right? He's gonna submit, he's gonna willfully submit to being a tool. They both laughed, him and Graf, right? This is on the on on their on their launch up to command school, and Ender had to remind himself that Graf was only acting like a friend, that everything he did was a lie or a cheat calculated to turn Ender into an efficient fighting machine. I'll become exactly the tool you want me to be, said Ender silently, but at least I won't be fooled into it. I'll do it because I choose to, not because you tricked me, you sly bastard. Ender chooses to be a tool and insists there's a big difference between choosing, and again, that's what that's what that um, those first passages, you know, these first four passages, especially the first three that I wanted to look at tonight. That's f for me one of the things that was so crucial about that. It's about choice, right? It's not just about, in some sense, you know. And again, in class one, we were talking about the individual and the collective, and the collective using the individual. Well, the collective can't use anybody. Can't, collective can't do anything. Only people can do things, right? So again, it's not humanity making Ender into a tool, it's Graf making Ender into a tool, and Graf is himself being used as a tool, and so on and so forth. So that's, we, we can say that's the relationship between the individual and the collective, but we can't say the collective is sort of doing that. But again, now, what we get in this is the individual's choice, right? Valentine making her choice. Valentine uh, pointing to the choice that she made in the past, that she's making now, and urging Ender to make the right choice. And now we see Ender saying, yes, I'm going to do it. We saw in the previous passage with him thinking about the Earth and of Valentine that he's going to make the choice to be a tool and to serve Earth and sub subordinate himself. Um in order to achieve this end. But of course there's terrible irony here, isn't there? Um, 
at least it won't be, I won't be fooled into it. Yeah, yeah, Ender, because that'd be awful. Sure, a good thing you're not going to get fooled into anything. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Neil Neil Einstein was just pointing that out. Yeah, sure is a good thing, uh, and just not going to let himself get fooled again. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, we'll come back to that bit, of course. Um, but I want to come back to this question of humanity and monstrosity, because um, here's another angle at it. Um, this is again back to Valentine on the raft and her telling Ender, um, you know, he's like, what if I can't do it? What if I lose? What if I fail? Right? What if I, what if I can't do it? Then all those people would die and it would be my fault. Her response, if you try and lose, then it isn't your fault. But if you don't try and we lose, then it's all your fault. You killed us all. I'm a killer no matter what. What else should you be? Human beings didn't evolve brains in order to lie around on lakes. Killing's the first thing we learned, and a good thing we did, or we'd be dead, and the tigers would own the earth. It's a lovely rationale, Valentine. Um, so, evolutionary superiority means being the best killer. So the essence of humanity as it has evolved as, you know, the dominant intelligent species on Earth, the essence of that is being killers, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, this is, of course, exactly the rationale that we see in Ender's teachers, in Ender's training, right? This is the rationale. Remember, there were several of you who were really uncomfortable with his rationale for uh, uh, for kicking the stuffing out of Stilson back in chapter one, right? Um, you know, he says, look, I, I, it's either him or me. One of us is going to really suffer. I'd rather it be him, right? So, okay, he's the human and Stilson is the tiger, right? Um, you can't let the tigers win. So what do you do? You beat them down. You take them out. You don't just, you don't just beat them. You destroy them. So then you're good. One could ask, what would it look like if tigers owned the earth, in fact? Um what it invites, at least for me, what it invites here is what's the difference then between humans and tigers? Is there a difference between human, humans and tigers? What this then further invites me to ask is, okay, hang on, Valentine. I've been suggesting all along that humanity and monstrosity are different things, right? Um, that to be dehumanized was to become, or rather to become a monster was to become dehumanized. I keep, I've been using that word a lot, right? Um, and I, I feel that that's how we've been invited to see Enders, to this process of dehumanization that he is going through. Um, but Valentine turns this around. He says, no, no, actually, to become a killer, to become a tool in exactly the way that Enders is, is, is being. Um, that is like Stilson, Bonzo, the buggers, right? The the third bugger war. 
natural kind of progression that it all holds together and makes sense. Um, that's to be human. That's to be evolutionarily successful. That's what you evolved your brain for, Ender. You are the you know Ender is the sort of the the logical evolution of mankind. And by the way, isn't there a way in which the book kind of invites us to see Ender as that? You know, Ender is like the apex of humanity. Um, you know, he is the, the, the again. It's not like we have a we have a you know a detailed multi generational breeding plan going on here. But but again, it was, he is like the ultimate one. You know, the, the 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 perfect balance of you know character and temperament and brains that humanity is producing. He's like the uber human, right? Um, certainly within the microcosm of the Wigan family. Uh, that's how we're invited to see him, right? Um, so again, there's a sense in which humanity, uh, you know, Ender is, well, not every man, but the, the Superman, right? He is the ultimate man. He's the perfection of, in this sense, in the evolutionary sense. He's the final evolution of humanity, uh, which is a gun that you point at things, right, and kill, to kill them most effectively. Um, that's what humanity needs. Remember with that that stuff all the way back from 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 class one. And the humanity needs individuals. It needs to produces individuals that it needs in order to to move it along. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, this is a fascinating way of looking at what humanity means, and to me, sort of calls into question that dichotomy in the first place. And we see it again uh, very soon afterwards in Ender's conversation with Graf at the end of chapter 13. So the whole war is because we can't speak to each other. We can't talk to each other. If the other fellow can't tell you his story, you can never be sure he isn't trying to kill you. Now that's a wonderful point of view, isn't it? Um, uh, again, that's the way humans should think, right? That's what makes human survivors is uh, when in doubt, assume the other people are trying to kill you and get them first, right? That's the way to guarantee that your genetic material is the one that carries on, right? That's, 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 uh, that's, the, that's the way it is. Um, that's the ultimate expression of humanity, I guess. Um, what if we just left them alone, says Ender. Ender, we didn't go to them first. They came to us. Those species of wasp, you know, you can't trust those those jerks. If they were going to leave us alone, they could have done it a hundred years ago, before the first invasion. Maybe they didn't know we were intelligent life. Maybe, Ender, believe me, there's a century of discussion on this very subject. Nobody knows the answer. When it comes down to it, though, the real decision is inevitable. If one of us has to be destroyed, let's make damn sure we're the ones alive at the end. Our genes won't let us decide any other way. Nature can't evolve a species that hasn't a will to survive. Individuals might be bred to sacrifice themselves, but the race as a whole can never decide to cease to exist. So if we, so if we can, we'll kill every last one of the buggers, and if they can, they'll kill every last one of us. As for me, said Ender, I'm in favor of surviving. I know, said Graf. That's why you're here. And that is why he's here. Remember, why is he there? He's there because he gave the correct answer to the question, why did you kick the crap out of Stilson? Remember, that was his, his Ender's final exam, right? Was, why did you kick the crap out of Stilson? And his answer was, 
to prevent him from ever being able to hurt me again. Didn't want to do it, but I calculated that it was the thing that was necessary. And and Graf is like, "You're the one. That is it, right? We've been looking for a genius six-year-old who will kick the living crap out of another six-year-old to make sure he can never hurt him ever again. That's our guy, right?" Um, so Graf says he's he's. Uh, um, He's got the exactly, Ender has exactly the right po point of view. But Ender, that's not Ender's only impulse, right? Yes, he does have that impulse. Yes, he did do that with Stilson and with Bonzo and with the Wasp on the raft, right? That is how he thinks. But he also is willing to believe, you know, he's willing to say, as he says in that sentence that gets so tantalizingly cut off, maybe, maybe. Maybe it isn't like that. Yeah, granted, and remember, this was the objection that many of you so sensibly had to the Stilson situation back in the beginning, right? Wait, hang on, maybe his reasoning is flawed, right? Maybe when he's saying, well, there are only two options here. Either they're going to keep coming after me forever and it's going to be awful and they might kill me in the end, or else I have to, you know, demolish Stilson now. Those are the only two things, really. Those are the only two options. Um, the idea of, hey, maybe I could make peace with them. Maybe we could work things out. Maybe Stilson doesn't actually want to kill me. Maybe it's not going to be as bad as I think it's going to be. Maybe there are any one of a number of other ways out of this possible situ out of this situation, possibly. Um, he doesn't think that way, right? We saw with Bonzo that he, the situation had been manipulated by Graf to make sure that that, that that analysis would be accurate, right? That, in fact, when Ender drew that conclusion with Bonzo, he was completely correct. If he didn't fight Bonzo, if he hadn't, uh, if he hadn't killed Bonzo, Bonzo was going to come after him. He was going to keep coming after him, right? The worse he defeated him, um, and, you know, he defeated Bonzo three times, right? Once by showing him up in Salamander Army, um, the second time uh, in the fight in No Gravity with Bonzo and the other older boys, and the third time when he uh, defeated and humiliated Salamander Army as the, as the commander of Dragon Army. So he'd already done this to Bonzo, right? Nothing was ever going to be enough until Bonzo was actually, not until Bonzo was in the body bag was this, was this going to be, and again, Graf could have stepped in, right? Graf could have prevented, but he chose not to, deliberately chose not to, and made sure that Ender knew no one could ever help him. The only way that that was possible to get out of that situation was to take matters into his own hands and to defend himself and to do everything that he could do. So, um... Now, when he is presented with this, situa with this situation with the buggers, he's trained to believe that that concept has been reinforced. But again, he's still holding out that possibility, that possibility which, as we said, he didn't really entertain very much back in the Stilson situation. Wait, hang on. Maybe, maybe it's not us or them. Maybe we could both coexist, actually. Um... And again, as I was emphasizing back in class one, 
it's not that Graf's position here is irrational, right? I mean, they, they, they had a chance not to come to us, right? If they were going to leave us alone, they could have done it 100 years ago. Um, they started it. And they came back again a second time. So it's not it wasn't a fluke thing, right? They came back once and we fought them off. They came back a second time in force to try to colonize us. And uh, uh, and we barely meet them off. Um, it's it is not at all irrational to conclude they're gonna keep coming back. We gotta do something, right? Um, so again, I don't, I'm not trying to um, trying to make it sound like it's obvious that that's um, but that's a totally invalid way of looking at things. But, of course, as we will learn, it's wrong. The buggers weren't coming back. There was no need for them. The third bugger war was totally unnecessary. The buggers weren't coming back. Um, but they didn't know this. In fact, the whole war was because they couldn't talk to each other in the end. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I won't even get into the fallacious reasoning about genes that Graf makes. Um, his causal reasoning is really fuzzy here. Um, our genes won't let us decide any other way. Nature can't evolve a species that hasn't a will to survive. Individuals might be bred to sacrifice themselves, but the race as a whole can never decide to cease to exist. Yeah, but the race as a whole can never decide anything. Only individuals can decide anything. Anyway, but I'm not even going to get into that. Um, to me, the bigger thing is the way in which both of them accept the situation. And again, I would go back to the tiger thing with, uh, with, with Valentine here. In a sense, Graf is accepting the doctrine that Valentine said about the tigers. Right? Um, humanity got where it is by being the toughest, right? And by by being willing to destroy its opponents, by being a killer, right? In a sense, that is what it means to be human. And so therefore, he is judging everybody else. It's does he believe the does he assume the buggers are monsters? Yes. But you'll notice, again, it's not as clear cut as it might sound. It's not it's not simply xenophobia. It's not simply we are humans and we know that humans are great. But those are nasty, ugly, insectoid monsters, so they must be horrible. They must be, they're monsters, right? So they must be cruel and terrible and want to make our heads explode like they did, apparently, and all these other things. You know, this is awful. So, like, they're really bad and we're really good, so since we're good and they're bad, we have the moral right to slaughter them all. That's not the reasoning. At the end, of the day, I mean, it kind of sounds that way in Chapter 1, but when it comes to it, that's not the way it is. Instead, it's... We know who humanity is. Humanity got to be where it is by being the toughest, and by being the strongest, and by being willing to defend itself, and by being determined to survive. We, therefore, are assuming they are intelligent life, too, like humans. Therefore, we assume they have the same outlook that we do. We believe that they're going to keep coming because we would keep coming if it were us. So, uh, we're going to... So, it's so in a sense... It's identity with themselves, not differentiation, again, not sort of just flat, um, sort of blind xenophobia. Um, it's uh, the fact is that he believes, Graf believes, that humanity, that all people wear Peter's face, like in the fantasy game, right? Everybody's Peter at the end of the day. Humanity, you know, the genes of, you know, the genes, you know, 
human genes as a whole are Peter, right? Um, and so therefore, the buggers have to be Peter too. He doesn't accept the the possibility. Maybe the buggers won't come. Maybe we misunderstood. Maybe they misunderstood. Maybe we can understand each other better. Maybe we can make peace. Nah, nah, not possible. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, notice how Ender keeps getting trained this way. This is a um, a really sort of grim moment. I think this is in uh, uh, Rackham's first day with Ender. Um, All right, Ender gasped. You win. The man's knee thrust painfully downward. Since when? Asked the man, his voice soft and rasping. Do you have to tell the enemy when he has won? Ender remained silent. I surprised you once, Ender Wigan. Why didn't you destroy me immediately afterward? Just because I looked peaceful? You turned your back on me. Stupid. You have learned nothing. You have never had a teacher. He was insufficiently preemptive, right? He's just, he's soft, Ender. You know, he just does not have that killer instinct, doesn't have enough of that killer instinct, despite what he did to Stilson, what he did to Bonzo, uh, what he does to wasps on rafts and everything else. Mazer Rackham's objection, insufficiently preemptive. Um, remember, Ender thinks about it. Ender thinks about it. He's sitting there, and he's like, uh, uh, he, he, he was going to attack him. But he's like, oh, boy, how am I going to explain that to Graf? Yeah, so there's this old guy in my room, and I, like, kicked his face against the wall, like, uh, you know, because he, you know, tripped me. So, yeah, I just, like, pulverized this old guy. Um, and he's like, yeah, that doesn't really sound, uh, that doesn't really sound right. So he doesn't do it. Mistake, right? Mistake. Uh, don't ever give in. Um... He's not tough enough. He's not enough. Well, not enough. Not enough like a tiger again. What would be the? How would things be different again if tigers ruled the world? Again, the fact that she chose tiger, I think, is fascinating. Um, Valentine, I mean, of course, back uh, a couple slides back because she suggested like it would be a bad thing, right? Could you imagine what the world would be like if tigers had ruled the world instead of humans? Well, how would it be different? I mean, maybe it would be different. Would it be worse? Um, you know, would the dominant species be more fierce, uh, be more merciless? Um, that's not what her own conclusion there uh, had uh, had suggested. I want to look now at the end of the story, at the end of the, well, at the end of the story of the Bugger Wars anyway. Here's Ender in his final exam. What I want to focus on here is looking at Ender's choice. Again, early on we are talking about choices. Um, and Ender and Valentine both making this choice, both making a similar choice. We're going to become tools. We're going to submit, we're going to subordinate our needs and our desires to the, to the good of humanity, to the good of the collective, and thereby consciously, as well as willingly, make ourselves tools, right? I'll per permit ourselves to be used as instruments for what we can see to be the greater good. Um, now we have him coming to the end of the test and being confronted by the absolutely impossible task. You know, he's got his, what, 80 uh, fighters um, against, you know, 
and like a hundred thousand bugger ships and the bugger homeworld. And just as he remembered that game, that is his last game when he fought two armies, apparently Bean remembered it too, for his voice came over the headset saying, Remember, the enemy's gate is down. Molo, Soup, Vlad, Dumper, and Crazy Tom all laughed. They remembered too. And Ender also laughed. It was funny. The adults taking all this so seriously, and the children playing along, playing along, believing it too, until suddenly the adults went too far, tried too hard, and the children could see through their game. Forget it, Mazer. I don't care if I pass your test. I don't care if I follow your rules. If you can cheat, so can I. I won't let you beat me unfairly. I'll beat you unfairly first. Now here's my question for you. Has Ender passed the test, or has he failed it? He believes he's failed, right? He believes he's cheating. He thinks he was supposed to win this battle honorably, right? To take his 80 fighters and defeat their 100,000 or whatever. Um, but he doesn't, right? He can't win it that way, and so he cheats. He breaks the rules, like he did in that last game in the battle room. And of course you can see that even in tactics, the, par the, the, the battles are parallel. Right? He uses almost exactly the same tactics that he used. By, having, by doing that weird formation that was designed merely to slingshot uh, the five small boys forward uh, to the gate so that they could touch their helmets to the gate and end the game in the middle before they'd taken out the opposing armies, that was... Almost exactly the same thing. They the fighters form a formation in order to uh, in order to, to like work their way through, and then the the small group of twelve launch in towards the planet just to try to to try to shoot it with a little doctor. Um, it's very you know it's and with all of them sacrificing themselves. That's uh, that's even tactically it's almost identical. But again, so here's Ender thinking I failed, right? And knowing he's like I'm going to throw the test. I don't care anymore. I don't care anymore. I'm not going to even try to pass. Screw them. That was his rationale, remember, in the battle room, too. Right? Forget it. He, he does what he does, not because he sees a way to defeat them, but because he says, I'm not going to play anymore. I don't care. And that's what he's concluding here, too. Of course, by doing this, I won't let you beat me unfairly. I'll beat you unfairly first. By doing this, again, just like in the battle room, he is doing exactly what they most want. Just as Graf was all over pleased when he got past the giant's drink, right? When he did the impossible, uh, when he solved the insoluble problem by, you know, by 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 breaking out of the rigid parameters that had been the game imposed upon him, um, he had succeeded. It was a little gruesome, but he succeeded, right? Um, so too in the battle room, when this impossible situation was uh, um, was put to him, he succeeded. Um, he succeeded by breaking the parameters, and so he's going to do the same thing here. Now again, he thinks he's cheating, but in cheating, um, he's doing precisely what it was hoped he would do, what he was being pushed into doing. Mazer has implied that he would be doing a very wrong thing to attack the planet exactly because that's what he's very much hoping uh, that he is uh, wanting. It's very much what he's wanting him to do. Um, 
so he's passed. He believes he's throwing it, he believes he's failing, but he's really passed. He's really done exactly what everyone hoped he would do, so Ender's the big winner. Humanity is the big winner, and the buggers are destroyed. But remember the way he was thinking about it back in the battle school, thinking about the competition between him and the teachers, right? them trying to beat him, and him refusing to be beaten, just like how he always said, I'm not going to play the game anymore, but then he does play the game, right? I won't play the game anymore, but I want to go out in style, right? I won't, uh, um, I won't play their games anymore, he says, as he logs into the fantasy game, um, you know, arranged by them for the psychological manipulation of their students. Um, he, in his act of defiance, what he believes to be an act of defiance, um, he uh, uh, he in fact is complying on the deepest level they're hoping that he would defy them in this way and ultimately he's failing to see through the deeper thing if he wants to just as in the battle school if he wants to um, protest against the teachers he should try not beating them, right? Um, defeat for the teachers would have been if he let himself lose, not if he kept competing against them and trying to beat them. Um, as he says to Major Anderson, he still can't help himself, even in that moment when he's saying he's giving up on the games, he still says to Major Anderson at the end of that last game, I beat you again, sir, right? Um, he can only, in that sense, win. The only If winning is defined as succeeding in doing his own thing and breaking away from the teachers, of refusing to be pushed into the channel that they're trying to push him in, um, he wouldn't have done it, right? He ended up going exactly in the way where they wanted him to go. Um, Remember, he's gonna, he chooses to be a tool himself. He's not going to be fooled anymore. But we see him being fooled consistently. Even as, and he's never more fooled than when he believes he's rebelling against them. Because, why? Because he doesn't understand what they're trying to do. What he has failed at with the teachers. You know, we, we, we see about how empathic he is with the buggers. And we'll look at that in a second. Um, but uh, um, that's what he fails ever to do really is fully understand the point of view of the attempt by the teachers to do what they're doing against him um, he passes he wins the war uh, but in doing so he does the single thing that will bring him the most self-loathing ever, right? Um, he becomes, he out-Peters, Peter, Peter's done a lot of bad things, but he's never uh, successfully committed genocide before, right? Ender takes out an entire species um, in this action, 
which he chose to do. And see, that's the thing, that's the kicker, is that he can say, oh, I was manipulated into it, I was lied. Yeah, yeah, he was. But he did it. He wasn't just tricked either. He, he, he knew. Um, he makes the conscious choice to go for the planet. Um, yes, and as Neil points out, meanwhile, Peter helps to save the Earth from itself. Yes, and establishes peace. Yes, he does. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Sharon Powell says, the older soldiers would find it unthinkable uh, to to uh, to little doctor the planet and thereby destroy their own fleet. I don't think they wanted him to do that. They wanted a better solution. Ender breaks the rules because it was the only solution he knew. Yes, I mean, Mazarakum suggests as much when he tries to explain <clears throat> uh, an explanation, by the way, which I've never found entirely satisfactory. Mazarakum's explanation for why he couldn't couldn't have done it, and why it had to be Ender. Um, but but anyway, the main thing he points to is he says, first of all, you're young and I'm old. You're you know you're faster than I am. But um, uh, he's known too much of war that he couldn't have done it, knowing that those were real people, that those are real soldiers in those planes that he was ordering to their deaths, he never could have done it. Um, so Sharon, in that sense, I agree that the other people, the grown-ups there, um, would have had a hard time saying, yeah, okay, those pilots and those 80 fighters, let's order them all to kill themselves. Of course, you see what's happened? Again, as always in this book, the same ideas come back again and again. What do we have? We have those pilots who chose to submit themselves to be tools. They're Ender's tools, right? He is using them for the good of humanity, and they are sacrificing them. They have chosen, Mazur emphasizes, they knew what they were doing. They made the choice to sacrifice themselves to, uh, to, for the good of humanity, right? So they wouldn't regret the choice that he made um, to use them as to, he was literally using them and manipulating them like they were objects like they were extensions of himself. He used them as tools. Um, but, but Sharon, i got to think, from their reaction, they're all pretty pleased at the result. Um, because the problem is, even if the... F I mean, I guess, you know, in theory, maybe, possibly in theory, had Ender somehow been able to destroy all 100,000 bugger fighters with the 80 human fighters that he has, um, which seems a tall order, even uh, 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 makes me think of Sam's comment. A bit of a tall order for Sam Gamgee, you might say. Um, uh, but um, Ender... Um, yeah, so again, in theory, maybe... They're saying, you know, really, he should have taken those 80 fighters and with those 80 fighters beaten all 100,000 other ships one by one so that at the end, after all of the ships had been destroyed, then he could have destroyed the planet when, and none of their other fighters, none of the human fighters would have been damaged by that. But that seems really unlikely. Um, in the end, he does... The, the planet had to be destroyed because the queens were there, 
right? Only by the destruction of the planet can the war really come to an end. You have to destroy them. You have to grind them down like the wasp on the raft. You have to, you have to reduce the entire species to a pile of dirt in space. Um, in order, this is the only way you can be 100% sure that they're not going to come after you again. Um, so the planet had to be little doctored sooner or later. Um, and I think that, and especially, it's, it's Mazur's comment where he kind of baits, he, 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 he drops a clue to Ender. You know, when he makes that sort of apophis, if you think it would be right to take out the planet, oh, no, golly, gee, I, that would be awful. Um, again, he's manipulating, and successfully manipulating Ender. Um, it's that's at that moment sounds to me like classic reverse psychology that he's using on Ender right there. I wouldn't want you to use the little doctor to take out the planet. Um, so between that and the way that they respond, uh, I, my my reading of it is that this is so pretty much exactly how they were hoping it would go. Yeah, as Ed um, just said, the queens are the are, are are really the only enemy. Yes, exactly, and Mazer at least understands that. Um, so he gets that, you know, you can chase down all 100,000 of the, you know, the fighters, but it's not going to do a look of good. It's not going to matter because all the queens are on the planet. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. Anyway, um, Yeah, Neil, remember there was that point where Mazur was shocked that Ender had first sacrificed a fighter, but he was faking it, right? When Ender said, look, I can't, I can't possibly win if I'm too afraid to lose a single fighter. And then Mazur smiled and says, good, exactly. I was just baiting you there, right? But you've got to be ready because there are gonna be, there's, there's going to be commanding officers and worse, there's going to be civilians who are going to come and asking you that all the time. You've got to ignore those bozos. They don't know what they're talking about. Um, you've got to be willing to have, to, make, to have some losses in order to... Um, in order to, to uh, um, in, in order to win. So again, this that passage is actually one of the reasons why I find Mazur's own explanation for why it couldn't be him kind of unsatisfying. Um, that uh, because it kind of sounds like he he knows full well that he is the one who's trying to teach Ender to be more preemptive. Um, I don't know. He doesn't sound to me really like he's a little too soft and fuzzy for this uh, position. Um, as he seemed to suggest. Here's the moment of revelation. Anagnorisis, by the way, is a wonderful term. This is a term from uh, Greek tragedy. This is the moment of recognition. Um, anagnorisis is the moment when Oedipus can no longer deceive himself about who his wife really is and who is the one whom he has cursed, who was the slayer of Laius, the former king of Thebes. Um, that's and the classic moment of anagnorisis. Uh, and of course, you'll remember, uh, if you remember uh, 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 your classical drama, you'll remember the response to anagnorisis. What does Oedipus do at the moment of anagnorisis? What seems a fitting and appropriate response to that revelation, to finally seeing the truth? Yeah, gouging out your eyes is exactly... Uh, uh, is exactly um, what uh, you do as a response. That is, 
that's the nature of anagnorisis. That's the that's the, the that's sort of the quintessence of this kind of revelation, this kind of recognition, um, when you finally see the truth of something, and seeing it is so horrible. The only way you can respond to it is by gouging out your own eyes uh, with uh, with a with a with a dress pin. Um, uh, preferably, if it's handy, the uh, pin off the dress of your wife and mother who's from her corpse that is hanging there suspended from the ceiling. That's really the, sort of the canonical way. But this is the moment of anagnorisis for Ender. Mazer laughed, a loud laugh that filled the room. Ender, you never played me. You never played a game since I became your enemy. Ender didn't get the joke. He had played a great many games at a terrible cost to himself. He began to get angry. Mazer reached out and touched his shoulder. Ender shrugged him off. Mazer then grew serious and said, Ender, for the past few months, you have been the battle commander of our fleets. This was the third invasion. There were no games. The battles were real. And the only enemy you fought was the buggers. You won every battle. And today you finally fought them at their home world, where the queen was, all the queens from all their colonies, they all were there and you destroyed them completely. They'll never attack us again. You did it. You. Real. Not a game. Ender's mind was too tired to cope with it all. They weren't just points of light in the air. They were real ships that he had fought with and real ships he had destroyed. And a real world that he had blasted into oblivion. He walked through the crowd, dodging their congratulations, ignoring their hands, their words, their rejoicing. When he got to his own room, he stripped off his clothes, climbed into bed, and slept. Ender simply retreats. Um, one of the things that I find... Um, most compelling in this final image. I don't know, well, maybe I know why one detail of that last, that last picture there really jumps out to me is his nudity, his stripping off his clothes. Um, that image of Ender lying naked, curled up onto his bed, comatose. Um, that he, it's, it's a, kind of an unnecessary detail in one sense, um, but it seems to me a really poignant kind of detail. There's a, 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 a stripping himself of all human trappings, of all, you know, and there he is, he's just a child lying there, you know, naked like a baby. Um, there's a sense of sort of like Ender in his true humanity, or is it Ender trying to shuck off his humanity? Uh, in some ways it kind of... Uh, it kind of uh, um, evokes both of those things to me at the same time. Um, Sean, I like that, that idea of sort of him lying there uh, defenseless at a time of great chaos and violence. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah. Notice the pronoun. Notice the blitz of use that Mazer hits him with in that paragraph, you did it, you, right, all the way through. Um, uh, you won every battle, you finally fought them, um, you destroyed them, uh, you know, you have been the battle commander of our fleets. 
he's Mazur's talking about him and what he has done, what he has actually done. But of course, it's exactly the moment of revelation here. It is almost as if it's like the room at the end of the world. He looks in the mirror and he's Peter with the snake hanging out of his mouth. Um, yeah. Um, notice they'll change their story, right? They're gonna they're gonna turn back from this and say, uh, um, "No, actually, it was um, it wasn't you. It was us, right? No one could really blame you for uh, for anything that happened here." Uh, um, you know, we we aimed you. We did it, not you. Um, but that isn't what he tells him first. It's not the way that this hits him. Uh, because again, this has all been who is Ender? What is Ender? Um, and in the end, he is being described as a monster. Um, he is he here learns in this shocking way that he has um, done this terrible thing um, and he chose to do it um, this act of defiance I'm kind of okay I'm just gonna blow up the planet who okay, cares fine I'll cheat I'll blow up the planet how would you like that and then to learn that actually that was a real planet that he blew up Again, his own choice coming back. Um, he should have listened to Mazer before. Ender was angry now and made no attempt to control or conceal it. I've had too many teachers. How was I supposed to know you'd turn out to be a, an enemy? Ender began, whispered the old man. I am your enemy, the first one you've ever had who was smarter than you. There is no teacher but the enemy. No one but the enemy will tell you what the enemy is going to do. No one but the enemy will ever teach you how to destroy and conquer. Only the enemy shows you where you are weak. Only the enemy tells you where he is strong. And the rules of the game are what you can do to him and what you can stop him from doing to you. I am your enemy from now on. From now on, I am your teacher. And of course, this phrase is... Uh, really wonderful. Uh, not only because, as a teacher myself, I find that this is a, this would be a really great quote to have on like a placard on your desk. Um, I'm surprised more teachers don't have quotations from this passage, like, you know, uh, on their classroom doors and stuff. But anyway, um, uh, the way in which this phrase, as so many in this book, work both directions. Right, your only teacher is the enemy. Um, that is the only one you can really learn from, is the enemy. That The secret of Mazur's success in the second war, the reason for Ender's success in the third war, is that they learn from the enemy. They learn from the buggers. They come to understand the buggers and therefore learn how to defeat them from the buggers. When no human being could possibly teach them how to defeat the buggers, they learn it from the buggers. In that sense, your teacher's the enemy. Of course, your teacher's always the enemy. But in this other sense, it's the teachers who are his enemy. Dink warned him. Dink told him. He didn't believe it. Of course, Dink himself seems to have left that uh, salutary suspiciousness uh, and paranoia behind to some extent. Um, 
but again, it turns out this this whole attitude. This is this is again this the, this paragraph, even more than the other ones I've we've talked about uh, tonight, is one that I would really point to to say this is the bottom line. This is the essence of the that whole human as monster attitude. That humans versus tigers uh, attitude. That you know uh, all intelligent species who have risen to the top you know of their uh, uh, of their evolutionary chain must naturally be prepared proactively to destroy any possible threat to their existence um, this is that this is to me the essence of that rationale there is no one but the enemy no one you can learn from but the enemy um, what is the flip side to you must sacrifice yourself for humanity you must give yourself for the sake of others, right? Is um, there is no teacher but the enemy? Um, who is the only one who can help you? Who's the only one who can support you? The enemy. And in order to help him, he, that Mazer, Graf, they have to be his enemies. We know they both love him. Um, I don't disbelieve Graf when he says that. Um, Ender doesn't buy it. Ender doesn't really believe it when he overhears it. I believe it. Um, we saw evidence that Graf was having serious qualms of conscience, conscience and serious doubt. And yet, um, and yet at the end of the day, both of them, Graf, Mazer, make themselves his enemy, pose as convinced the only way for them to be good to him, for them to make him into the tool he needs to be, is to become his enemies, um, in exactly the way that Dink suspected they were. Um, yeah, yeah. Carolyn, I think that's really interesting. Carolyn is uh, go going back to the image of him stripping off his clothes and lying uh, in bed. Um, Carolyn Morehouse is saying it, it, it seems like a kind of death. Um, you know, the death of the illusions the teachers crafted for him, the death of Ender's humanity, um, and of course the death of the buggers as well. Um, yeah, he becomes the speaker for the dead, right, at the end. Look at me, talking about chapter 15 again. Um, he becomes the speaker for the dead. And you're right, Carolyn, it's almost like he, he has died. And you know, that, that, that Ender is dead. Um, uh, it's uh, it's it's it is like that. That's I, I'm not convinced that that's that that's that sort of completely explains it. Um, but I do think that it's a really it's a really interesting and constructive way to think of it. See, like right now, there's a mosquito buzzing around my laptop here, and I'm totally thinking. I need to destroy that thing proactively before it can get me, because I've learned these lessons. Anyway, um, one last point. Now I'm going to get to the point that I didn't quite get to. So now that we're like uh, 10, well, I started a little bit late tonight, so I had to tuck in my kids, so, uh, who was to bed late tonight. So look at that. I'm only like five minutes late. And only now, five minutes after class is supposed to be over, am I finally getting to the point that I didn't get to last time? These I can go through uh, relatively quickly, and I want to think about this as a setup 
for looking at chapter 15 next time. Um, going back to the um, battle school and thinking about buggers and astronauts. So here's Ender in battle school studying the bugger war vids on his own. So it was from the buggers, not the humans, that Ender learned strategy. Teacher is the enemy. He felt ashamed and afraid of learning from them, since they were the most terrible enemy, ugly and murderous and loathsome. They're monsters. But they were also very good at what they did, to a point. They always seemed to follow one basic strategy only, gather the greatest number of ships at the key point of conflict. They never did anything surprising, anything that seemed to show either brilliance or stupidity in a subordinate officer. Discipline was apparently very tight. You know, discipline, kind of like Bonzo Madrid tried to maintain, not successfully, but tried to maintain, in Salamander Army. Um, so what does Ender do? He's going to be like the buggers. He's going to learn from them, right? Because they're really good at what they do. So let's be just like the buggers, right? Well, here's his philosophy. If the teachers had, this is after he's formed Dragon Army, right? And he's, he's, he's adopting his own tactics here. Either the teachers had been kind to him after all, or he was a better commander than he thought. His ragged little group of veterans, utterly without honor in their previous armies, were blossoming into capable leaders. So much so, that instead of the usual four tunes, he had created five, each with a tune leader and a second. Every veteran had a position. He had the army drill in eight-man tune maneuvers and four-man half-tunes, so that at a single command, his army could be assigned as many as ten separate maneuvers and carry them out at once. No army had ever fragmented itself like that before, but Ender was not planning to do anything that had been done before either. Most armies practiced mass maneuvers, preformed strategies. You know, mass maneuvers like acting as one single unit, as if they were all connected into one single mind. You know, that's like the strategy that they had been using. Ender had none. Instead, he trained his toon leaders to use their small units effectively in achieving limited goals, unsupported, alone, on their own initiative. He staged mock wars after the first week, savage affairs in the practice room that left everybody exhausted. But he knew, with less than a month of training, that his army had the potential of being the best fighting group ever to play the game. Why? Not because he is... Um, not because he's, he's being like the buggers, but because he's being unlike the buggers, right? He is, what they showed is no individuality. No, the discipline was very tight. They acted in perfect unison, but they only seemed capable of doing one thing at a time, or just a few things at a time. Um, no, the, no subordinate officer ever showed initiative. Ender's tactical philosophy is the opposite of the, of, of so we have, this is not, his, his army is not a bugger army, it's a human army. It's a uniquely human army. It's the most human army ever formed because it focuses on giving the initiative to the individual brilliant leaders who are under his command. Um, okay. And then we see in action. Same thing. All the soldiers knew what was happening, but tactical decisions were entirely up to tune leaders. Even with Ender's instructions, they were only ten seconds late getting through the gate. Rabbit Army was already doing... This is their first battle, of course, you'll remember. Rabbit Army was already doing some elaborate dance down at the end of the room. In all the other armies Ender had fought in, he would have been worrying right now about making sure he and his tune were in the proper place in their own formation. Instead, he and all his men were only thinking of ways to slip around and past the formation, control the stars and the corners of the room, and then break the enemy formation into meaningless chunks that didn't know what they were doing. 
even with less than four weeks together. They, the way they fought already seemed like the only intelligent way, the only possible way. Ender was almost surprised that Rabbit Army didn't know already that they were hopelessly out of date. Because Ender's army is more human and less bugger-like. Okay. Okay. So... That's interesting, and this seems an interesting foreshadowing of his wars against the buggers later on. Now, let's bring this, and you know, we have these obvious parallels forward into command school. Let's bring this into today's reading. The buggers don't talk. They think to each other, and it's instantaneous, like the philotic effect, like the ansible. By the way, um, does anybody know the old book? Um, Graf says uh, they invented this thing, this communicator, uh, and they called it an ansible. They found the word out of some old book. Anybody know the book? Anybody know the author of the book, the old book in which they found the word ansible? Yes, Sean. Ursula Le Guin was the, was, uh, was, was, was the author. Absolutely. Um, the book was, the, the first time she used it was, I don't think it was The Left Hand of Darkness. I think it was an earlier book. Uh, I forget the title now. It wasn't. It's. It's. It. I can't remember. But anyway, it was Ursula Le Guin who invented the Ansible. Um, I thought that was a really. Uh, yes, it was Will Cannon's world, Alyssa. That's it. Um, um, anyway, yeah, that's that's. Uh, so she was the one to invent that, and it's a concept that's used by many other people. But I, I loved that that one little nod that Orson Scott Card makes to a to a to a predecessor in the genre. Um, uh, without naming her explicitly. I thought that was really cool. Anyway, sorry. But most people always thought that meant a controlled communication, like language. I think that you a thought and then you answer me. I never believed that. This is uh, 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 Mazur talking, of course. It's too immediate, the way they respond together to things. You've seen the videos. They aren't conversing and deciding among possible courses of action. Every ship acts like part of a single organism. It responds the way your body responds during combat, to different parts automatically, thoughtlessly doing everything they're supposed to do. They aren't having a mental conversation between people with different thought processes. All their thoughts are present together at once. A single person, and each bugger is like a hand or a foot? Yes, I wasn't the first person to suggest it, but I was the first person to believe it, and something else. Something so childish and stupid that the xenobiologists laughed me to silence when I said it after the battle. The buggers are bugs. They're like ants and bees, the qu a queen, the workers. That was maybe a hundred million years ago, but that's how they started, that kind of pattern. It's a sure thing. None of the buggers we saw had any way of making more little buggers. So when they evolved this ability to think together, wouldn't they still keep the queen? Wouldn't the queen still be the center of the group? Why would that ever change? So it's the queen who controls the whole group. Now, do the thing that we've been doing. Do the thing we've been doing. You see how this is connected with all the rest of the book, right? See how these ideas and things that we've been talking about keep coming back up here. See where it becomes relevant here. What are the buggers like? What connections do we make? A bugger, the bugger flying a ship, is, yeah, Kate, under the control of the queen. Yes, Neo, Ender is the queen, right? Ender is the one who is going to... 
But in another sense, Ender is the worker. He's a tool, right? Why are the buggers so effective? Because they are perfect tools. The bugger is the logical extension. It is the logical extreme of the idea of tools serving the whole, right? An individual bugger's life doesn't matter. You, know, you can say the pilots on those, star on those starships and fighters willingly sacrificed their lives, um, knew that they were probably going to die, but were willing to make that sacrifice to defeat the buggers. That's one thing. But more extreme than that, far more extreme than that, are the buggers on their ships who have no sense of self whatsoever, who don't consider, don't, don't have any concept that of themselves. They themselves are a complete, are just completely interchangeable units. They are, you know, to, to, to kill a bugger worker or warrior is like clipping fingernails, Graf says, right? Or is it Mather? Anyway. Um, uh, so the whole logic of the human world, right? You've got to submit yourself for the whole. You've got to... is not differentiating themselves from the buggers. The logical conclusion of that line of thinking is the buggers. If the buggers are monsters, and you remember that language, that language that sort of bubbles up in Ender's psyche as he thinks about the buggers. Um, they're the most terrible enemy, ugly, murderous, and loathsome. Remember that? Um, from just a few slides ago. Um, that's the logical uh, that's, that, that's the logical extension, the logical extreme of the individual as tool of the collective way of thinking. To be truly human, the, thing, the one thing which actually differentiates the difference between buggers and humans is individuality, is individual personality, individual will, individual freedom of choice. It is the individual acting on his own, independent of the collective, that defines humanity. And what do we see? Humanity from the beginning saying, hey, individuals, get into line. So who's the ultimate human? Peter Wiggin. You know it. Peter Wiggin is the queen, right? Peter Wiggin is like, I am the hegemon, and I shall use all of humanity as my tool. Yep. Yep. Um... Like Valentine says, it all comes back to Peter, right? But anyway, um, so that's kind of interesting. But of course, uh, you know, but the, I'm not saying, uh, you know, Neil, that I'm disagreeing with you. Ender is like the queen, right? I mean, we do have that parallel um, where Ender is acting with all of the, and of course, you know, especially when we learn that those ships that they're manipulating in their simulator, right, turns out to be real ships with actual human beings piloting them, um, I, they were tools, right? Um, they, 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 as far as Ender knew, as far as his, as his squad leaders knew, um, they were just manipulating programs, right? They were manipulating little blips of light, um, it's a, it's in 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 that in that moment, to Ender and his squad leaders, the situation is exactly as extreme as in the bugger fleet itself. Um, but then we come back to bugger and his, or to bugger 
I actually called it a debugger there by accident. That's kind of an interesting slip there under the circumstances. The trust was complete, the working of the fleet quick and responsive, and at the end of three weeks, Mazer showed him a replay of their most recent battle, only this time from the enemy's point of view. This is what he saw as you attacked. What does it remind you of? The quickness of response, for instance. We look like a bugger fleet. You match them, Ender. You're as fast as they are. And here, look at this. Ender watched all his, as all his squadrons moved at once, each responding to its own situation, all guided by Ender's overall command, but daring, improvising, feinting, attacking with an independence no bugger fleet had ever shown. The bugger hive mind is very good, but it can only concentrate on a few things at once. All your squadrons can concentrate a keen intelligence on what they're doing, and what they've been assigned to do is also guided by a clever mind. So you see that you do have some advantages. As we saw back in battle school, as he was learning from the buggers and admiring their discipline, he was then proceeding to act in almost exactly the opposite way from them. Um, it is, uh, it is, he wins at battle school. Dragon Army becomes what Dragon Army is because they are the most human army ever, um, because they're not using bugger tactics. And here we see he has, uh, you know, Ender's fleet has become the, you know, sort of the, the best of both worlds. Uh, the, the, the integrated unity of the bugger fleet with the individual brilliance and independent action and freedom of choice of a human fleet. It's the perfect blend. Um, this kind of blend, this kind of balance, is what the teachers say they were having to, they were trying, this kind of thing. Um, it, rem it, it made me think of what the teachers were, were saying they were trying to create by choosing Ender and by manipulating him in the way that they did. Of course we tricked you into it. That's the whole point, said Graf. It had to be a trick or you couldn't have done it. It's the bind we were in. We had to have a commander with so much empathy that he would think like the buggers, understand them, and anticipate them. So much compassion that he could win the love of his underlings and work with them like a perfect machine, as perfect as the buggers. But somebody with that much compassion could never be the killer we needed. Could never go into battle willing to win at all costs. If you knew, you couldn't do it. If you were the kind of person who would do it, even if you knew, you could never have understood the buggers well enough. And it had to be a child ender, said Mazer. You were faster than me, better than me. I was too old and cautious. Any decent person who knows what warfare is can never go into battle with a whole heart, but you didn't know. We made sure you didn't know. You were reckless and brilliant and young. It's what you were born for. Note for a second, um, can never go into battle with a whole heart. Ender didn't go into battle with a whole heart. Again, look at the, at the as we were, you know, that passage we were looking at before the final exam, right? He's not going into it with a whole heart. He was going into it sardonically. He was giving up. He was deliberately cheating out of defiance. He wasn't going into battle with a whole heart, willing to win it at all costs. Um, he was throwing the game at the end. They're not understanding him and his position either, just as he wasn't understanding them. We had pilots with our ships, didn't we? Yes. I was ordering pilots to go in and die, and I didn't even know it. They knew it, Ender, and they went anyway. They knew what it was for. 
You never asked me. You never told me the truth about anything. You had to be a weapon, Ender, like a gun, like the little doctor, functioning perfectly but not knowing what you were aimed at. We aimed you. We are responsible. If something went wrong, we did it. Uh, Sharon, by the way, this is one of the uh, another one of the passages which convinces me that their plan had been for him to little doctor the planet like that all along um, because uh, because of that reference like the, comparing him to the little doctor um, that they were aiming him at the buggers like he aimed the little doctor at the planet um, again I take that parallel as a kind of confirmation that that's in fact the outcome that they were sort of banking on that he would do um, okay so their goal is to have it both ways, which again, for him to be the perfect tool, he still has to have humanity because only a human, if you're completely dehumanized, um, if you were like a bugger, you're like one of the bugger workers of the perfect tool, then you could empathize with anybody because to empathize with someone else to put yourself into the position of another self and think about how they think about things, to think of, to, to, to learn how they think and to, to feel how they feel involves having a sense of self in the first place, right? Um, this is what, you know, the, the complete lack of empathy um, is what we see in the buggers that were, dis that were described in those videos when they, um, in the second invasion, when they came in, in the, uh, no, it was the first invasion. Um, when that that tug went out to explore, uh, and the Enders, the Enders, my gosh, I did it again. The buggers, um, I, I, I killed the crew people, and then proceeded to like go and explore and destroy the entire place with the video with the the video communications running, not realizing that anyone on Earth could see what was going on. Right, the complete lack of empathy on their part, not even thinking they were committing murder. Like it's it's you know. Um, Nothing could be further from the thoughts of those those bugger workers that they were, you know, murdering a human being, a creature. Um, uh, so again, Ender was supposed to be the opposite of that. So he was very human, but also the perfect tool. They were trying to have it both ways, like his fleet was both ways, right? Like his fleet was all the best things of the bugger fleet as well as all the best things of a human fleet. But there's a consequence to trying to build that perfect combination of human and bugger, of monster. And, well, again, is human anymore the opposite of monster? Um, and that is Ender's point of view, and he talks about it back on the raft with Valentine. Every time I've won, because I could understand the way my enemy thought from what they did, I could tell what they thought I was doing, how they wanted the battle to take shape, and I played off that. I'm very good at that, understanding how other people think. The curse of the Wigan children, she joked, but it frightened her that Ender might understand her as completely as he did his enemies. Peter always understood her, or at least he thought he did, but he was such a moral sinkhole that she never had to feel embarrassed when he guessed even her worst thoughts. But Ender? She did not want him to understand her. It would make her naked before him. She would be ashamed. You don't think you can beat the buggers unless you know them. It goes deeper than that. Being here alone with nothing to do, I've been thinking about myself, too, trying to understand why I hate myself so badly. 
No, Ender. Don't tell me no, Ender. It took me a long time to realize that I did, but believe me, I did. Do. And it comes down to this. In the moment when I truly understand my enemy, understand him well enough to defeat him, then in that very moment I also love him. I think it's impossible to really understand somebody, what they want, what they believe, and not love them the way they love themselves. Perfect empathy, right? To, to be able to put yourself into someone else's position and to think like they think, to think about them as you think about yourself. What they uh, want uh, uh, to, to understand somebody, what they want, what they believe, and not love them the way they love themselves. And then in that very moment when I love them, you beat them. For a moment, she was not afraid of his understanding. No, you don't understand. I destroy them. I make it impossible for them ever to ever hurt me again. I grind them and grind them until they don't exist. The perfect conflict. The perfect selfishness. Because again, the, Stil the Stilson choice is ultimately a very self-centered choice. right? It's me or him that has to be destroyed better him than me. Right? Again, in a sense, this is like the opposite of the self-sacrifice made on the part of the fighter pilots right? who sacrifice their lives knowing that they're doing good for humanity. But again, the whole concept is that whole self-sacrifice is premised upon this larger choice to say we're going to destroy them no matter what to make sure that we survive. Right? It's ultimately a, sel a selfish choice um, for humanity. Um, but at the same time, so he has, this is what perfect empathy combined with perfect tool of humanity looks like. Um, for him to be the ultimate human, right? The culmination of human evolution as we were talking about before and therefore to be the biggest tiger, right? To be the, uh, to be the, to be the most perfect killer. Um, ultimately, it's Ender's self-loathing, right? The consequence of what they were trying to build. They, the teachers, seem to have this belief that it would be okay. As several of you are pointing out, when Mazer reveals the tr truth, he does so almost callously, he does so with a laugh, right? As if not understanding, having no concept of how Ender was going to respond to that. Um, not knowing the extent to which he's kind of this is the end of the world, right? He's come to the room at the... Turns out that was the room at the end of the world, right? Um, when he learns that the fantasy game was not a fantasy game, it was real. Um, the consequence that they didn't foresee. Again, they thought this could all be fine, but in the end, it creates this perfect self-contradiction which creates the situation of not just self-sacrifice but of self-loathing of hating himself because he loves his enemy his love for his enemy we'll go on to talk about that more um, next time thinking about uh, you know his enemy as his teacher and his loving of his enemy um, I want to go up go on and, and, and finish looking at that. Um, just crushed that mosquito beneath my thumb there, like the wasp on the raft. Um, uh, anyway, uh, we will talk about that next time. 
um, and uh, think about uh, the Speaker for the Dead stuff at the end. It's a really fascinating turn, and I know. Um, well, we'll talk about this next time. Anyway, so we'll we'll look at the turn that this novel takes uh, at the end, um, chapter fifteen. In some ways, doesn't really sit with the rest of the story. It certainly pivots things in, in a very different direction. Um, so next time we'll look at that. Two things. First, um, I would love to hear other questions. You know, other topics that you. you I mean, I've been. Uh, a little bit less flexible than you, as I've been wanting to work through this book, as I have gone through this book and really kind of been discovering all of these, you know, intricate connections and stuff, I've really wanted to work this stuff out for my own self, um, so I think I've been a little selfish in, uh, in, in kind of dominating the, the topic of our conversation during these, uh, during these classes. Um, if there are other topics, other ideas, other questions that you guys have, I would love uh, to hear them. Send me an email at olson at mythgard.org, um, and I will try to integrate some of your questions into our session next time, uh, in addition to covering just you know that one last measly chapter, how long did that take to talk about uh, next time. The second thing to remember is when next time is. Next time is not at our normal time. We are not meeting next Tuesday night. This is good news for everybody in Europe uh, because it means that we're going to be meeting at a Europe-friendly time. Um, we're going to be meeting in the weekend. I'm actually out of town. I'm on vacation with my family next week, which is one of the, why I had to move it away from uh, from the normal time of the week as well. Um, and thought since I was moving it anyway, I would take advantage of having uh, of, uh, of scheduling at a different time of day too. Um, to uh, have mercy on our, our poor European listeners who can never listen live without staying up in, in the middle of the night. Um, but, um, so yes, we will, um, um, we will look at, um, we'll focus on chapter 15, do questions and answers. This is next Saturday, next Saturday afternoon. Um, I think I'm blanking. It just, it's at 3 o'clock, right? 3 o'clock Eastern time, th 3 o'clock p.m. Eastern time uh, on next Saturday afternoon. Um, that is Saturday the 3rd of, uh, of, of May. Um, and then we will have one more session after that just a few days later in our regular Tuesday slot. Um, we will do a session talking about the film. Uh, version, the recent Ender's Game film adaptation. Um, of course, as uh, any of you who listen to Riddles in the Dark know, I'm really interested in the question of, of adaptation and the kinds of choices that filmmakers make in adapting stories, uh, so I'll be interested to talk about uh, the Ender's Game film. Um, whether you like it or hate it, there'll be interesting stuff to talk about, so let's, uh, let, we'll talk about that for our last class. Um, and then, you know, uh, after that, you know, we'll, we'll decide to move on to something else, whatever, I don't know, whatever that might be. So um, thanks very much, everybody, for joining me and for being patient for another super long class. I really, uh, I really got to stop doing this. But anyway, thanks, everybody. Good night. See you next weekend, uh, like 11 days from now. Thanks, everybody. Bye.